So how many of you, if you had to have surgery, want to make sure that the person doing is qualified? Right? I mean, I, I want the best I can get. And, and you know, the, the more important the surgery, the better qualifications. I, I, I better see like 19 degrees on the wall. You know, that you're, you're, you not only graduated well, but you have stayed and maintained, like, you, you, you've forgotten nothing. <laughs> you know, if we're having neurosurgery or something, I want the smartest man in the universe to do it, that is the most qualified, and he's done it at least 900 times. Because qualifications mean something, right? I mean, it, it tells us you know what you're doing. But what about in God's kingdom? How do we know when somebody's genuinely qualified to do what God calls them to do? You see, this is one of the great treasures of the faith. Is that God calls the unqualified. Now, how many of you does that set right? That he calls the unqualified. I mean, you know, let's just be honest. How many of us are genuinely qualified to represent Almighty God? I, you know, none of us at the end of the day. And yet, what does he say? He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. For whatever reason, in his wisdom and in his grace, God has chosen to use broken, imperfect people to reach broken, imperfect people. And that's the way he's going to do it. He, he has not changed that. From the first moment, when, when the Great Commission was given and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. From that moment forward, he gave to the apostles a command to do something for people to go reach people, and he hasn't changed it since. Nothing that has given in Scripture since then, nothing that, you know, all the way through Revelation ever lets us off the hook to say, well, I'm not qualified to reach somebody else. And yet, for some reason, in the American church, we have kind of wanted to farm out our evangelism and our reaching people to the qualified, to the professionals, when God calls all of us to do it. Now, the Corinthians fell into this same kind of thinking. And this is where the trouble started to come in between those who doubted the Apostle Paul and those who followed him. And it was the, the reason for all of Paul's anxiety is he had to tell them that's wrong and you need to repent and we need to be unified in this. And, you know, he had to write what he called that tearful letter and, and he was so stressed out over it because he didn't know if ministry was going to go on uh, in Corinth, if they would accept it or not. And they did, and he got his good news from Titus, as we talked about last week, that they were now, you know, back aboard, and okay, we understand, Paul, we, we hear what you're saying, we believe you. But one of the things that the Corinthians had really fallen into was they doubted the Apostle Paul's qualifications. There were false teachers that had come in, and they had these letters supposedly coming from you know, other church leaders saying, these are the people you really need to listen to. 
And Paul had no such letters. Paul just, he went and preached the gospel. He did what God told him to do. And it kind of became a, uh, a struggle between the Corinthians wanting the qualifications and wanting man's approval for what God had called Paul to do. And so in this section today, in 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul kind of lays out what it means to be qualified in the kingdom of God. Now also what happens here is we start to turn a corner in this book and get into what we could say is the real meat of this letter. And he just turns it on a dime. He goes from talking about personal things to, bam, we're into theology. We're into some deep things about God now that are going to make a huge difference in the lives of the, the, these readers and, you know, in the lives that we lead every day. And so look with me in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 1. And he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Like I said, Paul turns a corner hard right here, and he decides to get into the meat of the gospel and we're going to talk about legalism. We're going to talk about what the Spirit does. But he makes a statement <clears throat> as he's making that turn, and he talks about that this is written on hearts. And what does he mean by that? Written on hearts. And then he says later, not written on you know, stones, uh, uh, tablets of stone, but written on hearts. Now, of course, this brings back the imagery of Moses coming down from the, you know, Mount Sinai with the, the tablets and the Ten Commandments written on them and, and the sin that was going on and, you know, that engraved on this were, was the very words and commands of God. And yet we see in that moment the irony of how ineffective the law was at restraining sin, at renewing or changing hearts. Because at the very moment God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, what are the people doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. They've already given up on God. Now think of that. They just passed through the Red Sea on dry ground with water on both sides, freed from slavery. They see Pharaoh's army destroyed. And then they go set up camp right at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up there and they're like, well, this took too long, never mind. You know, I don't know that the bad attention span we talk about people today with technology is really something new. Because back then, they, they lost hope very quickly. And they gave up because the law does not change a heart. There is no rule that I can make that's going to make you a different person. 
How many of you in here have ever tried that? You're just like, you know what, I'm going to set a rule. I'm, I'm no more. I'm not doing this. You know, I'm not eating past 8 o'clock. And the kids go to bed, and you're like, that ice cream looks really good. And they don't know that we have it. You know, the rules just don't do things. And, and so what Paul is getting at here is the gospel. The gospel of grace in Jesus Christ is different. It's not just a set of rules that we follow. It is more. He says it is written on hearts, not on tablets of stone. In an act of faith, in a life change, in the midst of darkness, that is a true treasure of the faith. And that's what the Corinthians have. Now, has there been challenges? Absolutely. The Corinthians have struggled at literally every turn that they could struggle. But their faith is real. And one of the things they have not yet realized is that they themselves, in their changed state, their new lives that they are leading in Christ, are the letters of recommendation for the Apostle Paul. Because Paul went in there, he founded the church, he started it, he shared the gospel with them, God blessed it, people were saved, and the church started growing, and people started getting saved. And when that happened, we see a miracle, new life, the gospel taking root. And they got distracted and started valuing man's opinion above what they could actually experience in grace. And so that's why Paul says, you yourselves are our commendation before God. You yourselves are our recommendation for everybody to see. You see, Paul isn't looking for anybody to confirm his faith or confirm his calling. He knows who he is in Christ. He is an apostle, not by the will of man, not by his own choice, but by the will of God. God called him and told him to do this. And what is the evidence of that call? The fact everywhere he goes, he starts a church, it's blessed, the gospel starts changing lives, and it doesn't stop. And so Paul, as they're, they're arguing about who's more qualified, Paul doesn't even worry about that. He doesn't even think about, well, maybe I need these letters of recommendation, maybe I need this. Well, he just says, you yourselves are my letter of recommendation. My concern is for you and the fact that you have a living faith in the middle of a very dark city because Corinth was an incredibly immoral and an incredibly pagan city okay it would not have been an easy place to practice the Christian faith it would have been socially strange I mean it, you'd be an outcast in that city uh, following Christ uh, the, the pagan rituals would be everywhere. And so there's, you know, sometimes we Christians just kind of want to close off the world. And it's like, oh, I'm just, you know, I don't even want to see it. I just, you know, just keep it all away. You couldn't have done that in Corinth. Like you couldn't walk down the street without being influenced or, or seeing the pagan culture around you. And so every single day in Corinth would be an active decision to follow Christ. Every single day would have to be an active choice to reject the paganism around you, and embrace and follow Christ. And they were doing that. And Paul looks at it and says, it's working. Despite all the trouble, despite all of the division, despite the fact that they have even questioned my motives and who I am, your faith is intact. God's winning. 
Now, why could he say that? Because he knew something about the gospel that they had not yet really grabbed hold of. And God had even prophesied it in the past. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, we had a promise given by God through the prophet Ezekiel. And he said, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Heart change. When Paul says written on hearts, he's talking about the gospel gets inside of us and it changes who we are. And this is why we do it a disservice when we reduce the gospel to simple behavior modification. We think, well, you know, they'll get saved, they'll clean up a little bit, and then then we're satisfied with it. Paul wasn't satisfied with just a few behavioral changes because he knew what the gospel was about and that the gospel itself is about being born again, being born from above, being made completely new in the image of Christ. We become a new creation, which Paul is going to talk about later on in this letter. We become an entirely new creation in God's eyes. In Jeremiah 31, 33, and then repeated again in Hebrews 8 and 10, God told us this. It said, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their, what? Hearts. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, there is a world of difference between a law written and inscribed on a tablet and that law written on a human heart. Now, what we're talking about, the human heart, we're not just talking about feelings. You know, in in Western society, we've kind of turned the heart into just the, you know, it's just about love and warm feelings and kittens and rainbows and those kind of things. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the seat of who a person is. The will, the, the, the emotion, the core of who you are. And God says, I'm going to write my laws <clears throat> on your heart. Who you are is going to become compatible with who God is. Now that is a huge prophecy to make. And that is exactly what happens <clears throat> when we receive the Holy Spirit of God, we become that new creation. God redefines us from the inside out. And so the process, once we are saved, the process of sanctification starts where what I like to think of it is it's not just behavior modification. Okay, now that you're saved, you've got to act differently. It's that we become different and what has happened on the inside starts to work its way out. And if you are saved, you can't help, you can't keep that from happening. I once heard a story about a, a pretty rough individual who got saved. And he, <clears throat> he, he had a pretty rough lifestyle. We started attending church. And he was attending a fairly conservative, traditional church. And so he came in and, uh, you know, he had hair like mine. And they said, well, you know, you, you really need to cut that. So he said, well, okay, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but okay, you know, this is new to me, so I'll do that. And then they said, well, you know, your clothes, you got to really, you need to to change those clothes. And and he just kind of kept following what people were telling him to do, 
But he went to the pastor and he says, you know, I don't understand all of this. Why do I have to change all of these things? And the pastor said, well, you know, what do you think God is telling you? And he said, you know, I think I'm just, I think I'm selfish. And you see, while everybody else was interested in his exterior, what was God working on? The heart. Unfortunately, in that situation, people didn't give him time and room to grow in Christ, and he ended up leaving that group. I don't know whatever happened to him after that. But it was clear God was dealing with his heart at a level that, that was very deep and very real. And, and, and when he said, you know, I just feel like I'm selfish, that was God saying here is a deep core issue that, that's going to change. As you come to know me, I'm going to root this out, and it's going to change. Why? How did he even become aware of his selfishness? Because God wrote his laws on his heart. And suddenly he was aware of a part of himself that he wasn't before. That's what God does when he writes on our hearts as we become aware of our sin. Not to condemn us, but to set us free. To change us. Because he's already changed us. And now we realize the way we think isn't in line with who we are at this moment. Who God has changed us to be. And so Paul brings that up to them and he says, look, I'm not doing any of this externally. This isn't about letters of recommendation. This isn't about just passing along a new lifestyle to you. He says, we're doing this to write this on your heart. And it is strictly by the grace of God that Paul is an apostle. And so it is the same grace that has placed the Corinthians so firmly in his heart. And I mean firmly, he was unable, remember last week, he was unable to continue ministry in Troas because he was so concerned about the Corinthians. That is a love that only God can give. It's eternal in nature. And Paul doesn't need credentials or approval from other people to love them and lead them to Jesus. And so what Paul has chosen, and this is something I want you to listen to, Paul has chosen being godly over being right. Now, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm not saying he's embracing sin. Don't listen to that the wrong way. He's chosen being godly over needing to prove himself to people, over needing to win an argument. He has chosen to love them, to show them Jesus, and to lead them to Jesus over just simply winning an argument and being right. And when we get in our flesh, sometimes that's something we as Christians are really, we're really bad at doing that. We just, we, we want to be right. And, and many times we are right, but the way we're right makes us wrong. You see, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't willing to sacrifice his relationship with them now, did he call them out on their sin? Yes, he did. He, he had to because it was destroying their relationship. So he had to call them to repentance. And he said he did it with much tears. I mean, it broke his heart to have to, to confront them in this way. But he did it. But he did it out of love because his concern was for them. And when our motivation is about godliness, godliness in others and godliness in myself, godliness all around, 
when our motivation is that God is glorified in all things, it changes the tone of the discussion completely. We no longer argue about things that that don't matter. We stay focused on the things that do matter. And so what are the characteristics of godliness? In Romans 14, 7, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, Romans 14 is a a chapter that I think everybody needs in, in church life. They need to read it. They need to memorize it. They need to study it hard because it tells us, don't argue about secondary things that don't matter. He says, be fully convinced in your own mind. Know what you believe and why you believe it. But you know we don't have to agree on everything in order to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to agree on everything in order to tell other people about Jesus. We really don't. And there are discussions that happen that are just strictly divisive in nature because it's people going on a rampage of, I need everybody to agree with me. You know why? Because they want to be right instead of godly. And when we value godliness first in all situations, then we know the result. What is it that we as a church should focus on? What should be the the core of our ministries? Paul says it right here in Romans 14. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, which in that case were hot-button items of should you, should you eat this type of food or should you drink this? I mean, it, was, it were items in which people were sharply disagreeing within the church. And he goes, that's not what the kingdom's about. What is the kingdom about? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When's the last time a truly robust theological discussion brought you to a sense of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit. That's what it should be doing. We as a church and we as Christians, when we relate to one another, we should be encouraging each other forward in a manner that encourages righteousness and peace and joy. Now notice, this is righteousness. We don't compromise on the things that that are indisputable, okay? I mean, we don't compromise that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We don't compromise that, that Jesus is the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. We don't compromise that. We don't compromise things that, that say, you know, that God created them male and female. We don't compromise that. We don't compromise on the sanctity of life. I'm not ever going to say sin is okay, But that doesn't mean I have to be belligerent about it. You see, we should be causing this this incredible cognitive dissonance in the world. Where we are a people who stand firm on the truth. And I mean stand firm. We are unwilling to compromise. This is what the Word of God says is true. And I'm standing on it. While at the same time being the most loving, friendly, kind-hearted, and gentle people in the world. And it should cause the world this incredible confusion. That they're, they're ready for a fight because of what we stand on. And they're ready for us to yell and scream and get angry. And we say, no, this is what I believe and I won't compromise it. And so they yell and scream and they get angry. And then we show, you know, we, we don't have to yell. 
I don't hate you. Can I buy you lunch? What can I pray for you? And we should cause that kind of confusion in the world where they say, I don't understand. You're, you're the nicest person I know. You're the most generous, kindest person who, who is willing to help everybody and, and you just have this joy and peace about you all the time and I disagree with everything you believe. But I can't help liking you. Because you're the nicest person I know. And it should cause that confusion. You know why? That is being salt and light in the world. And just the right amount of salt causes a person to thirst. And that's what we should be doing in the world is representing God in such a way that they want more. And that's what Paul did. That's exactly what Paul did everywhere he went. He told people about Jesus. He called them to repentance. And churches started. And as they were blessed, as they grew, he said, there's the proof of my calling. The people that are following Christ. Because here's the secret that Paul knew. God qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified. God has a habit of calling people who on the surface at the moment have no business doing what he's telling them to do. They don't want to do it. They would never be the person that people would choose. It leaves everyone scratching their head going, really, God, that choice? That's what you're doing? And God says, yeah, watch. Watch what I'm going to do. You see, I'm going to get the glory out of this, not you. And this is where Paul turns that corner. Look again in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Wow. Paul says, I can't, I couldn't do this. This isn't my choice. This isn't anything I want to do. This isn't something I'm qualified to do. This isn't something I could even train myself to become good enough to do. Not that we could claim any of this as sufficiency for ourselves, but it's God who makes us sufficient. So he says, you want to see my credentials? Talk to God. He's the one that's making all of this happen. And he doesn't say that arrogantly. He's not saying, oh, as, you know, nobody knows my heart but God. It's not that kind of thing. He's saying, this, this isn't my doing. This is God's. You read all of Paul's letters, and one of the things he repeats over and over and over is that I am an apostle, not by the will of man. Like, he reminds people all the time of, like, not my choice. This is not how I would have done this, but God in his glory and in his wisdom has and it's working, and we glorify God for that. And we give thanks and we praise Him for it. You see, when God puts His hand on your life, He qualifies you to do the very thing He wants you to do. Now, that doesn't mean you're qualified because you're a Christian to be a neurosurgeon. Okay? And, and, and sometimes I run into this kind of line of thought. Well, they're a Christian. Okay. I still want all of the credentials on the wall for my neurosurgeon. Okay, I, I need you to, to really know what you're doing. But when he has called us to be salt and light in the world, only God credentials that. 
There is nobody in this world that can tell you whether or not you are a witness for God other than God himself. And if he's called you to do it, which he's called all of us to do, then he qualifies you to do it. And you don't need permission to do it. Now, here's the great thing about this qualifications. You can't earn it. You can't force it. You can't buy it. If God wants you to do it, you'll do it. That's it. It's that simple. Now, do we have to be willing and available? Yes. We have to be willing to say, God, I'll do it. And that typically isn't an easy discussion. Anybody here know that discussion? How many of you, it's just a moment of honest, who in here has ever tried to talk God out of something? That he puts a call in your heart and you're like, oh, no, no. I would rather not. And God says, oh, you're going to because I'm calling you to do it. And you're like, oh, really? That's not a good call. And we argue with him about it. You all know when God called me to ministry, I was terrified of public speaking. When I was in high school and I had to give presentations in class, I kid you not, I had to hold on. I, I could not, I remember one time I gave a speech, I couldn't read my notes, my hand was shaking so much. I had to like hold it down on the podium. I was so nervous. And so when God called me to ministry, I thought, that's a funny joke. You want me to get up every week and talk in front of people. You know what? Here I am. Because God changed my heart. He qualifies those he calls. Now, this discussion is not new. Okay, listen in Exodus 4, 10 through 13. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he, Moses, said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. This is at the burning bush encounter. I mean, this is Moses. And he argues with God for so long that it says the Lord's anger burns against him. And God's like, I made you. Now, what he's telling him when he says, I'm not eloquent, the Hebrew right there is, is really good. It says, I'm slow of speech and fat of tongue in the Hebrew. Moses had a stuttering problem. And he had a speech impediment of some kind. And God calls him and says, go speak in front of the most powerful human being on the planet right now. Go speak for me. And he's like, speak? Are you kidding? You want... And, and he even tells you, he's like, you, you know how I talk. And God's like, I, I, I made you. I know exactly who you are. And Moses continues to argue. So if you've argued with God, know you're in good company. Because that is our reaction most of the time. Almost all of us, when God calls us to something, we say, oh, no, no, bad call. But you know what? God sees things. He knows what's in you. He knows who you are better than you do. And if he calls you to do it, you can do it. Now, you don't, you're not going to do it on your own. You do it through his power, through his enabling. You learn how to follow his spirit. And that's why Paul reminds them over and over, we're not sufficient in ourselves. 
I couldn't do that. These ministries that are happening are not because I'm the smartest apostle out there. It's not because I'm better than the others. It's all because of God. Now, there's another person that I want us to talk about really fast, and that's a man named Gideon, when God called him. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Well, that would feel good, wouldn't it? Have an angel show up and be like, you're the dude. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. In case you missed it, this is called sarcasm. The angel shows up, says, Gideon, mighty man of God. And he says, really? Because I don't feel like it. I'm threshing out wheat on a wine press to hide it from people that will come and take it from me. He felt like anything but a mighty man at that moment. He's literally hiding what he's doing from the people around him. And it's an everyday thing. He's so afraid. And he's like, really? God's with me? Then why is life like this? Now, how many of you have ever felt that? Really? God's with me? Then why is this? Why? I noticed the angel didn't answer that question. God doesn't owe us a why. Because if we really believe God's in control, then he's in control, and he doesn't have to explain himself to us. But what Gideon goes into, he's just like, God is with you. And he's like, yeah, I don't feel like it. Did that change the fact? No, God was with him. And he was chosen. And Gideon goes on to conquer armies that, that are ten times the size of his. Was it through his, his ability? No, it was through God's blessing with him. He did the things God called him to do. And it worked. God qualifies those he calls. Which means whatever he's calling you to in life, you can do it. Now, I didn't say it wouldn't be hard. I didn't say there wouldn't be difficulties. I didn't say that everything would go smoothly. I didn't say that it would succeed in the way that you think it would. I'm saying God will take you through it exactly how he wants to take you through it. And he will not leave you or forsake you in that process. And one of the hard things in this process is we'll constantly be reminded how it's not about us. Because God wants the glory, amen? He's not going to sacrifice his glory. He's not going to, to allow us to pat ourselves on the back. He's going to remind us over and over, you're only doing this because of me. But I want you to do it, and you will get the blessings of being involved in it, but it's through me that you do this. And so that's why Paul, even in his, his wisdom and everything that he did, God gave him a thorn in his flesh. And he says, it's to keep me from becoming conceited. And he says, three times I asked the Lord to take it away from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. He told him, I will carry you through this. 
And so Paul fulfilled his ministry knowing that it was only by the grace of God that it was happening. With a constant reminder of his weakness and his fallibility right in front of him every step of the way. And so that's why he was able to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. He, he just wrote it. He told him, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But I love this phrase. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He, he, he even admits, he says, I shouldn't be an apostle. There's no reason for me to be an apostle. I'm not worthy to be an apostle, but I'm an apostle. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he doesn't feel, he has to defend his apostleship, but at the same time, he, he defends it by pointing back to God and saying, God did this, not me. <laughs> yes, I'm an apostle, and that makes me an authority, and I speak for God, but listen to God. Focus on him, not on me. That's how you know God has qualified somebody for a ministry when they're constantly pointing you back to God. And then he closes this section with something rather interesting, and that is in 2 Corinthians 3.6, he says, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he's turning a corner right here, and that is because legalism kills. And that's what the Corinthians were falling into was needing the approval of man. They wanted these rules. They wanted this to happen outside of faith. They wanted to take control of it in certain ways. And Paul had to pull them away from it. And he says that they are there not by the letter, but by the spirit. And he has to differentiate between faith and legalism for them. And so what I want us to think about today is the instant we start keeping score according to what makes sense to us, we lose. The letter kills. When we start keeping rules, when we start keeping track of, of wins and losses and, and who's qualified and who isn't and, and this kind of stuff, and we start, start making those judgments for ourselves rather than by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, that's when we're going to lose. We're going to become divisive. And that's what had happened in, in Corinth. Remember, there was a, a time in 1 Corinthians he wrote, and he said, you know, there were people that say, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Peter, and I follow Apollos, and others saying they're super spiritual, and I just follow Jesus. And they were all fragmented in Corinth about who they followed, and Paul had to tell them, he says, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Who's Peter? We're all servants of Jesus. And he had to remind them, that this legalistic ranking of people and things, it wasn't serving their purposes. It wasn't serving God's purposes. And so he reminds them his entire ministry is about the Spirit of God and faith. Where they wanted a checklist set of rules, and I mean that, a checklist set of rules of, okay, you're righteous if you do these things. That's what they wanted, and he wouldn't give it to them, and they were aggravated by that. But Paul tells him right here, what? He says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. When we follow God in faith, then it brings life to us. 
And like we said earlier, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so I want to close with with these two questions. Are you experiencing life-giving faith or life-taking legalism? Which one are you experiencing? Does your faith energize you for life and give you strength to get through it and, and to know that God is good and give you the ability to love and see the good in others even, even when it's hard? The Corinthians were speaking horrible things about Paul and yet he cries and weeps wanting to bring them to Christ because he loved them, because his faith was genuine. And then... Are you willing to engage in the ministry to which God is calling you? Even if you feel unqualified, if you feel unworthy, if it's something you would rather not do, just know you're in good company because every other human being that God has ever called in the history of the world felt the same way. Because God has a habit of calling people to ministries that we would never pick. We would never choose. God's understanding of leadership is very different from the world's. And it's only when we are willing to step into it and say, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to trust you with it. You've called me to it. I'm going to go through it. You've called me to it. I'm going to go through it. And when we are able to do that, we find that peace And God does amazing things around us and through us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. And God, I thank you for each person in here. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, whatever it is we're facing as far as following you in obedience, the various ministry callings, the various functions of the body, God, we know that none of us are sufficient within ourselves, just like Paul said. But God, I pray that we would believe deep inside that you qualify those you call. God, that you qualify us for the work of grace, for the ministry of grace. You have qualified us to be a witness for you in this world. Be a voice for the gospel. And God, I pray that whenever the enemy wants to cloud the issue, God, that we would remember that all the ground is level at the cross, at the foot of the cross. And that none of us is sufficient in ourselves, but God, that you accomplish all things and that this is about your glory. And through your grace, God, we can serve you and do great things for your kingdom. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.